Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much, choir. And we're so thankful for Christ, of course, who bridged that gap between us and God. And, uh, and he did say, what, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what, no man comes to me uh, but uh, through him. We recently began a new sermon series entitled, Blessed are the Persecuted. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, Jonathan. I thought the boys and girls would be throwing darts at me. Boys and girls, you're dismissed for your children's worship. I'm surprised they weren't throwing something at me. They love their children's worship. Uh, if you're a guest and you have children, uh, they are more than welcome to participate. Uh, the leadership picked them up out in the vestibule, and they go directly below us in a place we call Praiseville. And... Uh, for their children's worship, and that's where you'll pick them up when we finish. Well, we have begun this new series, Blessed Are the Persecuted, where we're looking at 10 Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith in God. The goal of this series is threefold. A first, to learn how God uses persecution to grow His children, but also to advance his kingdom. Second, for us to learn how to respond to persecution in a godly, Christ-like manner. And then third, to encourage us to remain faithful to Christ regardless the cost when we face persecution uh, today. Now let me just take a moment to remind you why this sermon series is so relevant to the day in which we live. The United States of America has forsaken its Christian roots. And today our culture is dominated by a secular worldview which seeks to remove God and the Bible from having any influence on our culture. But there are dire consequences when a culture forsakes God. First, you are left without any basis for moral absolutes. Matter of fact, the only absolute left is the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes and anything goes. Uh, things so basic and fundamental as gender, marriage, are totally redefined. What was unthinkable just yesterday becomes the new norm today. The line between right and wrong is constantly changing. And Christians are being more and more viewed as narrow, intolerant bigots for not embracing the moral shift in our culture, and more and more we are coming under attack for our beliefs. Also, once you eliminate God, who created humans in His image, you are left without any basis for the worth of human life. This has ushered in such atrocities as abortion, the slaughter of the innocent, infanticide, and euthanasia. Things like child abuse, sex trafficking, and violent crime have all skyrocketed 
all brought about by just a general cheapening of life in our culture. A recent example is the boasting, the boasting. They're very prideful over this fact that the nation of Iceland with the rest of Western Europe and America just right behind them, they have virtually eradicated Down syndrome individuals from their population. And they've done this not as a result of some miraculous cure, but by using genetic testing, they discover these Down's children while they're still in the womb, and they kill them. They slaughter them. And they boast over that fact. Well, that offends me. It offends my little Carissa. Uh, I think we all see. She has a life worthy to be lived. Who would say that she does not? Matter of fact, it's interesting, uh, General Mass, uh, uh, many years considered the number one hospital in the United States of America and definitely not a Christian organization. Uh, They did a study on uh, Down's uh, children and adults. And they found in their study that 98 to 90 percent of them are very happy with their lives. I wonder what that percentage would be in the general population. Amen? Uh, The state of Oregon. This is tragic. State of Oregon just enacted a law that guarantees free abortions for all women, absolutely free abortions for all women, through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason, even sex selection. You know what I mean by that? I want a boy, not a girl. Discovers she's pregnant with a girl, so she slaughters the girl because she desires a boy. Free abortions through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason, even sex selection, much of that being paid by the taxpayer. We've already mentioned California, Illinois, Hawaii, who require Christian pregnancy centers to provide all their clients information about where to obtain abortions. And failure to comply involves stiff financial fines designed to literally shut these ministries down. All of this puts Christians, let me back up, all this puts committed Christians on a collision course with the secular forces in our culture. Intolerance and hostility will increase. Christians will be more and more pressured, even mandated by law, to do things which are contrary to God's laws. And it is time to prepare for persecution. And especially to prepare our children and our grandchildren. Why? So we do not become intimidated by the attacks. So that we stand firm in our faith in Christ. Firm in advancing the gospel. That we won't retreat, but we'll continue to advance the gospel of Christ. And when necessary, say just like the apostles of old, we must obey God rather than men. Last Sunday, our lesson was on Joseph, in which was our first lesson. And this is what I would say would be the main takeaway from that lesson. Behind all persecution of God's people is the unseen 
hand of God, accomplishing his plan for his people. Uh, This is seen in Joseph's classic statement of faith as he's reflecting on 13 long years of slavery and imprisonment brought about by the mistreatment of his brothers. And to those same brothers, he says in Genesis 50, 20, and as for you, you meant evil against me. You meant to hurt me. You meant to harm me. You meant to take me out of this place. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Listen, beloved, God's sovereignty is like a mystery novel where it is impossible in the middle of the book to discern the plot or the reason why so many things are happening. We don't understand until what? The end of the book. When everything comes together and everything is revealed, therefore faith in God is required so that you don't close the book up on God too quickly and you allow God to finish the story. And today we'll see this reinforced in the life of David, which is our second lesson uh, that I've entitled, How God Uses Persecution to Perfect His Child. And our focal passage will be portions of the book of 1 Samuel, along with four psalms that we know David wrote during this time of persecution. Psalm 34, 56, 57, and 142. Now, let me begin as we, we did with Joseph, and this will be the pattern in all ten of these lessons. I, I simply want to review the story, and then after reviewing the story, we will extract from that lessons that we can apply to our lives uh, today. And as we rehearse David's story, uh, for the purpose of our study, we can uh, divide his life into five uh, segments. And I'll do this uh, very, very quickly. Most of you are familiar with his story, but we could say the, the, the first major event or or, or segment was David's anointing, his anointing by the prophet Samuel, signifying that he would what? Be the next king of Israel. Uh, This took place, we know, when David was just a teenage shepherd boy, uh, the youngest of eight sons of, of Jesse. And then that brings us to the second major event in David's life, And that was his contest uh, with Goliath, uh, which uh, after the defeat of Goliath, it brought him what? Instant hero status in the nation. Just just instant hero status. And then that brings us to the third segment in his life. And that was David's rapid promotion in life uh, to uh, military commander. uh, And with that, uh, bringing him great material prosperity. He experienced marital bliss during this time, married to Saul's daughter, daughter Micah. And, and again, just tremendous national fame. They're actually writing and singing songs about David and his feats on the battlefield. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And then that brings us to the fourth major segment in his life, and that 
was David's persecution. David's persecution at the hand of Saul, the king, who attempts to kill David three times, twice by throwing a spear at him, and both were very close misses, and the third when he set a trap at David's home uh, to catch him. Uh, and you know, if you know the story, he escapes that tra a trap through the help of his wife, uh, Micah. Uh, Saul then labels David a criminal. Now, now, just think about this for a moment. Overnight, literally overnight, David goes from being national hero to public enemy number one. And all of this despite the fact that he served King Saul. He served God with perfect integrity and loyalty. He did not deserve any of this. He was met with evil for only doing good and that which was righteous. So he then becomes a fugitive on the run. And do you know how long this persecution lasted? Now, we don't know exactly. The Bible does not date it. But we can safely say for at least 10 or more years. 10 or more years. David, public enemy number one, fugitive on the run. 10 plus long years of persecution. But it is during those painful years of persecution that God shapes David's character to fulfill his God-given destiny, which brings us to the fifth segment in David's life, and that was his elevation to king of Israel, where he reigns for 40 years until his death. You know, don't miss, and, I, and I, as we go through this series, you need to look for common denominators in the uh, 10 Bible characters we'll be looking at. And I hope you're not missing one of the very obvious ones with Joseph and David. God's destiny for both men were to be rulers. Joseph in Egypt, David over Israel. But God knew both men were not ready to be rulers. Their character had to be shaped molded so that they would be prepared for their God-given destiny. And that's why God allowed both of these men to suffer such mistreatment, so many years of mistreatment, persecution, to make them ready, to prepare them for their God-given destiny. Now, folks, is there an application to you and me? What is our eternal destiny as the people of God? is to reign and rule with Jesus, to be his eternal queen. We will be at his side. We're not just going to be in heaven, you know, just playing harps and singing all the time. We will be rulers. We will have responsibility. We will assist Christ in administrating the universe. But since that is our destiny, God has to prepare us. There needs to be a compatibility of character between Jesus, our king, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. 
So just like David, just like Joseph, he allows you and I here on earth. This is our boot camp. This is God getting us ready for our eternal destiny. We see, we get so focused on right now, we miss the eternal perspective, the eternal picture that God is preparing us for that destiny. Now, what we want to do is to focus on David's persecution, and especially the early years of persecution. And, it's, and, and uh, also, just know, this, we're not going to finish this lesson today. It, it'll take me uh, today and next week. But it is so important to work hard to put yourself in David's position, to just imagine, to, to think about it, to, to hopefully somewhat be able to empathize with him. David, in just a 24-year period of time, is literally stripped of all help and all hope. Every, think about that, every single person that David knew either became his enemy or, if they were his friend, they were absolutely helpless to assist him. He is totally alone. Not a single human companion, totally isolated. As he runs from King Saul into the Israel wilderness. No security, no food, not a single tangible source of present help or future hope. Matter of fact, he makes the statement in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, there is, a, there is hardly a step between me and death. There's hardly a step between me and death. Matter of fact, David becomes so low he becomes so depressed, so desperate, he makes one of the most foolish decisions he ever made in his life. He decides, well, I'll try to seek refuge from the king of the Philistines. So David walks right into, he leaves Israel, goes into Philistine, and he walks right into the capital city of Gath by the way, which was the hometown of Goliath. So, so picture the scene. Here's David who killed Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. Here's David who had killed thousands of Philistine soldiers in battle. And oh, I almost forgot God. You know, as he walks into the capital city of Gath, right into enemy headquarters, you know what he has strapped on his side? The sword of Goliath. You would think this is some sort of death wish. The Philistines immediately recognize this is David. They apprehend him, take him to the king, and it doesn't take long for David to come to his senses, and he realizes, man, did I just make a stupid, idiotic move, terrible mistake. They're about to kill me. And then you remember what happens? Remember, this is the occasion where David feigned that he was insane. He began to drool and foam at the mouth and just pretend like he was a madman. And when the king saw him, he said, man, this, this guy's an idiot. You know, he's, he's, he's cracked. 
you know, just, just throw him out of here like garbage, which they did. At this point, David goes back into the wilderness in Israel. And listen now, he literally crawls, literally, he crawls into a damp, dark cave called the Cave of Adullam. This is the lowest point in David's life to date. He wrote Psalm 142 to describe his experience in the cave, being isolated with God. Would you turn your Bibles to 142? Just want to read it with virtually no comment. But you can quickly see his pain, his perplexity, and his struggle. Yet, he maintains his faith in God, although it was very shaky at this point. And and you say, how do we know that he wrote these psalms during that? We'll we'll look at at, uh, right at the beginning. It says, a masculine of David when he was in the what? cave, when he was in the cave, and this is what he writes. He says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. Notice, I pour out my complaint before him. He's not very happy with God right now. He's struggling. What in the world are you doing? I thought I was anointed to be the next king, and then I'm hung up in this dirty, dingy cave a fugitive on the run. So I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit has over, overwhelmed within me. Notice that, overwhelmed. He's just overcome with pain. Thou didst know my path and the way where I walk. They've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. For... Bring my soul out of this prison. That's how he viewed the cave. It was a prison cell. So that I may give thanks to thy name. The righteous will surround me, for thou wilt deal bountifully with me. Now this is what I want you to notice as we go forward. Yes, David is hurting. And yes, he can make absolutely no sense out of his life right now. But like we discovered In Joseph's life, David continues to put his trust in God. Did you notice the very last statement in the psalm? The very last statement. The righteous will surround me. Why? Because you will be bountiful to me. David realized, as confused, as perplexed, as hurting as he was, that God was not finished with the story yet. And that in the end, it would have a good ending. Therefore, he was not not about to close up the book on God and give up. Now, follow in your sermon notes 
as we look at three truths, and we're just going to see the, look at the first one this morning, and then we'll look at the remaining two next week. So we're going to look at that first truth on how God uses persecution to perfect His child, and again, from each of these truths, we will extract a lesson and application for us today. And this is the first thing that God, this is the first thing God did with David. It's the first thing that God's going to do with you. The same principles that God, uh, we see in David's life and protecting, we're going to see in our lives today. And that is God removes all human supports. That's the first thing God always does when he sets out to perfect, to grow one of his children, to prepare them for their God-given destiny. He's literally going to remove all human supports. Look at that next statement in your notes. God kicks out from under me all my crutches, anything I lean on for support, which can be a substitute for God. God will literally kick out from under me. It seems so cruel initially. Why, God, would you do that? But he kicks those crutches out. Anything that I lean on for support, which can be a substitute for God. In other words, folks, let's be honest. When trouble comes into our lives, when adversity comes, our, typically our initial response is to look horizontally for help. And God says, no, 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 no. I want to teach you that your immediate response is to go vertical and to lean on me, to trust me. Now, look at the crutches that God kicked out from under David, just, just to show you how deep God will do. The first crutch he knocked out was David's position. We, we talked all, already about all of this, his position. I mean, he lost his job as military commander. He lost all sorts of income, the ability to provide for himself, becomes his fugitive on the run, public enemy number one. And so where, where does he run? See, now David at this point, he's still looking for the, he's still looking horizontally. He's looking for human crutches that he can lean on. So then he, he runs to Micah, his wife. And of course, we mentioned Saul sets a trap for him. She helps him escape, but you know, he's never reunited with Micah. It's the last time he ever saw her. So God kicks that crutch out from under him. And then what does he do? Then the boy runs to his spiritual leader, exactly where we would think he would run. He ran to Samuel, the one who anointed him to be the next king. He ran to Samuel, his spiritual leader, his spiritual mentor, looking for help, looking for assistance, looking for someone to lean on. But Saul discovers where David is, and he takes out after him. David has to run. David never sees Samuel again. Samuel dies before David can ever see him again. And so then what does he do? He's still looking horizontal. He runs to his closest friend, Jonathan, one of the few people, Saul's son, Saul's son who, who was supportive of him and loved him and cared for him. But you know the story. He's forced, as we already mentioned, to flee into the wilderness. Jonathan, because of the situation, is really helpless to provide any significant assistance. And do you know, he never saw Jonathan again. Jonathan ended up being killed in battle before David could ever be reunited with him. 
And then the last thing that he lost, the last crutch God kicked out from him, was his self-respect. And that, that's what happened in the incident at Gath that we just talked about, where he feigned insanity. And so, at his lowest point, he's lost his position, he's lost his wife, his spiritual leader, his closest friend. He's lost his self-respect, his self-esteem, his self-worth. He's about as low, depressed as you get. He crawls into this dingy, damp, dark cave. Now, here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. Getting crutches kicked out from under you is frightening, and it is. But let it cause you to lean on God, not look for another crutch. That's the lesson here. When God does this work again, it is painful, folks. It hurts. It, it is frightening. But understand what God is doing. He's trying to get your focus off the horizontal, put it on Him vertically. To learn to lean on Him and Him alone and not look for substitutes. And see, again, this is what David learned in his fiasco of walking into Gath to seek refuge from a Philistine king instead of Almighty God Himself. And he wrote Psalm 56 to describe that experience and what he learned from it. And look in your notes at what he wrote in verse 3. He says, he says, this is what I learned. When I am afraid, we are going to be afraid. You're never going to come to a point in your Christian life where you're, you're, you're so tight with God, you're so bold, where you're never going to know fear, you're never going to know anxiety. What he says, yes, I know fear, yes, I'm afraid, I'm human. But when I'm afraid, I've learned, I will put my trust in thee. I'm not going to look horizontally anymore. I'm looking to God and God alone. Look at uh, verses 9 through 11. He says, this I know, that God is what? For me. And what does Romans 8 say? If God is for me, who can be what? Against me. Do not anxiously look about. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Because he realized God ultimately is in control. So it's, it's fascinating you see the progression. He says, when I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in God. I'm going to look to God vertically. I'm going to look to His word for comfort, encouragement. I'm going to find my anchor in God's promises, and then he comes full circle, and he's able to say what? In God I put my trust, I will not be afraid. See, this is how you overcome fear. This is how you overcome anxiety. By when that anxiety hits, that fear hits, you turn to God. You turn to his word, and God provides support. Now, this verse is not in your notes, but I also think of Isaiah 40, verse 10. Great, great verse. Do, this is God speaking to us, his children. Do not fear. Why? Because I am with you. Do not anxiously look about. In other words, don't be looking horizontally, for I am your God. Look up. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my right 
righteous hand. See, God is saying, I will hold you up. But if you're leaning on someone else or if you're leaning on something else, you cannot lean on me. God was shaping David to be king, a king who would lean on the everlasting arms of God. Why? So that David could teach a nation to lean on God, to trust God. And God wants to teach you to lean on Him. Why? So that you can teach others to lean. So that you can teach others to trust in Him. Father, uh, thank you for this precious lesson on the life of David. And Lord, we've seen in both the life of Joseph and David how you led them into very dark, difficult days of adversity and persecution. And you did this not because you hated these men, but because you deeply loved these men. You did this to these men because you had a destiny for them to fulfill. And you were preparing them for that destiny. You used the adversity, you used the difficulty to shape their lives, to mold their character, that their character would be like steel with you. And that they would learn to be content with you in any and every circumstance as they would lean on the everlasting arms of our God. So, Lord, we realize as your children, you're still working the same way today. You're teaching us to lean, to put our trust. And, Lord, to do that, we don't like to admit it, confess it, but, yes, it is necessary for you to kick the crutches out from under us. All those things that we lean on that become a substitute for you. And so, Lord, you know the frailty of our humanity. We see it in the life of Joseph and David. These were ordinary men who, as you began to kick those crutches out from underneath them, they became frightened. They became depressed. They became so desperate. They were confused. David even complaining to you about his life circumstances. And Lord, that's us. That's us. And so we pray that you would meet us in our human infirmities and failings and deficiencies and even our sin and that you would be faithful. But Lord, I pray, whether it's for me or this people at Edgewood, that you won't give up on us and that you're not going to let us off. That even though we may rail at you, although we may misunderstand you and accuse you, Lord, I pray you'll just keep knocking those crutches out from underneath of us until we learn to lean on you and you alone. So, Lord, I know that there are individuals in this sanctuary this morning that are really hurting right now that are going through very dark days of adversity. They can relate to David crawling into a damp, dark cave that, as we see in Psalm 142, he viewed it as a prison. 
So Lord, thank you, you're in the cave with us. And Lord, again, give us the grace to lean on you. And although we don't understand, to allow you to finish our life story by maintaining our faith in you and knowing in the end that the ending will be good because you are good. You are compassionate. And we will look back to all those points of pain and hurt. And we'll one day see the reason why behind every tear, behind every heartache, and we'll praise you for the work that you did on our lives through that adversity to bring us fuller into your light, life, and love, that we might express that to others. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As our invitation is extended this morning, uh, I would just encourage you to respond to God. To say, God, you know, what I have to do in a message like this, I mean, you know, when I give a message, to me it's a very personal thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just preaching you, I'm, I'm preaching uh, to myself as well, especially in the preparation time. I, I come under deep conviction. And, I, you know, first thing I have to say is, God, forgive me for getting mad at you when you start knocking those crutches out. Because I, I have gotten mad, I have gotten angry, I have gotten disappointed with you, forgive me. Okay, I, I'm, I, I understand what you're doing, but Lord, I need your help. Only by your grace can I get through this, and, uh, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust you do have a plan. Even though I can't see the plan, I can't see the plot, I can't see the reason, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And so, yes, Lord, teach me to lean on you. And yes, Lord, if there are any other crutches, you continue to kick them out from underneath me so that I will learn to trust in you. And, of course, if you're here, as Andy shared earlier, and you do not know Jesus, you've never crossed that great divide of, Walking across that bridge that Christ laid down for you through his death, burial, and resurrection to come to know God, love God, we would encourage you to put your trust in him and to open up your heart uh, to follow him. And, um, and so I'll remain here to uh, receive anyone that has a decision of any nature, profession of faith, uniting with the church family or any other church uh, prayer need. So please stand as the invitation is extended. And let's each and every one be responding to the truth we've heard today right there in your pew, acknowledging the truth, harmonizing your life with that truth, and worshiping God.